This is Upfront on the Voice of America. I'm Jackson Bungani. Thank you for joining us. Today on the show, we look at the recent decision by Germany to recognize the killings of thousands of Hereros and Nama people of Namibia between the years of 1904 to 1907 as a genocide. But why did it take that long? And why is Germany refusing to call the $1.3 billion payment reparations or compensation? Germans set up a pincher movement so that the people who weren't killed by Germany's firepower were pushed into the Omaheke Desert. Plus, the battle on who makes the best jollof in West Africa plays out in South Africa. Taste, the richness, you know, the diversity of the ingredients that have been put in. And I think that's the reason why the lady who won, she really put a lot of stuff. She called it competition jollof. Those stories and some of your voices on the fight against the COVID-19 global pandemic right here on Upfront. So stay tuned. And we start with the recent decision by the government of Germany to formally recognize that it's killing of thousands of Herero and Nama people, two ethnic groups found in Namibia, was a genocide. The mass killings were carried out between 1904 and 1907 as Germany expanded its colonial and imperial footprint on the continent. Now, many historical scholars have termed it as the first genocide of the 20th century. Dr. Elizabeth Baer, author of the book The Genocidal Gaze from German Southwest Africa to the Third Reich, agrees with this characterization and contends that it was driven in part by a perception among colonial powers at the time that Africans were subhuman lacking of any civilization and history and thereby using it as justification for the violence against them she says that even though germany has agreed to pay 1.3 billion dollars many are questioning the agreement which refuses to use the terms reparations or compensations it also has no direct payment to the descendants of the herero people instead most of the money will be used to buy back the ancestral land that was forcefully taken by the germans So the Germans uh, came late to colonization. They uh, began a settlement colony in southwestern Africa, just above South Africa, in uh, 1885. And essentially what they began to do is to steal the land from the indigenous people, among whom were two groups called the Herero and the Nama. Um, They... uh, raped a lot of women. They stole cattle from the indigenous people. Essentially, they felt that they could take whatever they wanted and um, and set up a colonial um, uh, settlement. So in 1904, the Herero uh, people were, were really fed up with the behavior of the Germans, um, and they rebelled against the Germans. The Germans spent about six months building a railroad up to uh, a mountain in the northern part of the country, and there was an enormous battle there called the Battle of Waterberg. The Germans set up a pincher movement so that the people who weren't killed by Germany's firepower were pushed into the Omaheke Desert. And uh, many of those people died of starvation or dehydration. The Germans followed them into the desert and poisoned the wells. Namibia is a very um, dry, arid country with a lot of desert. 
the people who eventually returned from the desert back to the um, communities were put into concentration camps. Then another uh, indigenous group, the Nama, uh, rose up against the Germans for the same reason. They saw what had happened at the Battle of Waterberg, so they decided they were going to fight a guerrilla war instead. And um, this war lasted three years, but ultimately the Germans conquered them as well. And uh, the Germans not only set up concentration camps, but they set up the prototype of a death camp on an island off the coast of Namibia uh, called Shark Island. They provided no shelter, no toilet facilities, no medical facilities, no food. They put people literally in cages on the beach. Um, some people who were imprisoned there were the subject of medical experiments, the subject of rape. When people died, the Germans cut the heads off the former prisoners. They forced other prisoners to scrape the flesh off their faces, and they sent the skeletons back to Germany for medical experiments and to prove that uh, Germans were superior to mm -hmm. the African people. How much of what they did in uh, Namibia at the time kind of laid the groundwork for the Holocaust? Uh, scholars have been writing books for a couple of decades now, including my own, uh, about the parallels between these two genocides, which took place only 20 years apart. I mean, it was not a long period of time. Um, altogether in Namibia, 80,000 indigenous people were killed. That was about 80% of the Herero and 50% of the Nama people. Um, after World War I, Germany lost their colonies and the German military went back to the fatherland, so-called, and they wrote histories of their glorious exploits in Africa. But all the colonial files were um, locked away. And Germany did not talk about this um, massacre, this what has now been declared a genocide. They, they decided and, to forget about it. Uh, pretty much, and it's called colonial amnesia, when a group of people sort of hides or denies uh, what happened. Mm. Hitler now, Germany admitted its responsibility for the Holocaust, again, like you said, which happened just two decades after the, the genocide of the Naman and the Herero. What, why did it take long for Germany to acknowledge this genocide? Well, first of all, they had hidden... Um, what they had done, and they, um, I think, uh, didn't want to have to pay reparations. After the Holocaust, they paid reparations to the survivors, and they did not want to have to pay reparations in Africa. And certainly other um, colonial powers committed genocides as well. Um, King Leopold of uh, Belgium uh, murdered many, many people in the Congo. Um, so I think the awareness in the world of connections between imperialism and genocide and of the atrocities that were committed on the continent of Africa has been heightened in recent years. And I think Germany finally recognized that they were going to have to admit that they had committed a, a genocide between 1904 and 1908, you asked about similarities with the Holocaust. And first of all, the use of concentration camps and death camps. Uh, the fact that 
the first governor of the um, colony in Southwest Africa is the father of Hermann Goring, one of um, who founded um, uh, Hitler's um, killer squads and so forth. So there's a lot of personal connections. I think one of the most profound connections is what I call the genocidal gaze. And that is looking upon a people in a way that deems them as subhuman, as less than human. And so then that makes it easier to just murder them. And this is how the Germans looked upon the Herero and Nama people in German Southwest Africa, their colony. Um, They said, these people don't have a religion. They don't have a history. They don't farm the land because people in um, Namibia were largely cattle farmers. They didn't grow agricultural crops because of the lack of water. And so they said, we can just take this land, and the German term Lebensraum, or living space, um, became popular during the colonial era, and that's a term that is associated with the Nazis as well. And so this attitude that you could cleanse the land of people and take the land for the superior race, the Aryan race, um, goes back to Germany um, through memoirs and novels and newspaper articles from the colony. And this is what uh, the attitude is, again, during the Nazi Holocaust, the genocidal gaze on Jews, on uh, people of color, on people with disabilities, on Roma and Sinti, gay people, etc. This is Upfront on the Voice of America. I'm Jackson Vungani. I'm chatting with Dr. Elizabeth Baer, the author of the book, The Genocidal Gaze, From German Southwest Africa to the Third Reich. That's the title of the book. Now, we are talking about the recent decision by Germany to recognize as genocide its killing of thousands of Hereros and Nama people in Namibia between the years of 1904 and 1907 as part of its colonial expedition in Africa. So now, what does it mean that the Germans have finally admitted that there was a genocide in, you know, in Namibia of the, of the Nama and Herero? What does it mean for the Nama and the Herero and for the Germans themselves? Okay, that's a great question. Um, there's a lot of controversy on the ground in Namibia about Germany's offer to acknowledge the genocide and to give um, the equivalent in American dollars of $1.3 billion to Namibia for development purposes. Why is there controversy? First of all, the agreement is between the governments. Even though some Herrera and Nama people have been going to Germany and negotiating for this nine rounds of negotiation since 2015, But still, there's no direct payments to the descendants of the Herero whose land was stolen a century ago. The money's going to the government. Um, Some of the money, about 50% of the money, in fact, is going to be used to buy land back from the Germans. But this is land the Germans stole to begin with. So it means then the money will go back to the Germans, right? Namibian government pays Germany for the land, and it goes back to the Germans. 
Some of the other um, money is allocated for vocational education. Some Namibians find this to be very condescending. Why aren't they giving them a, a college education instead of just assuming that their abilities are only at a vocational um, level? So, um, and then there's among the Herero and Nama, there's distrust with their government. And this is a, a political party situation. So, Namibia was the last country in Africa to gain its independence. Namibia did not gain its independence until 1990. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and the political party that succeeded in gaining that independence, SWAPO, uh, worked very hard. It fought wars for many years against the South Africans to get the independence. But SWAPO and the Herero and Nama people do not always get along politically. And the Herero and Nama people were decimated in terms of numbers because of the genocide. SWAPO is much more powerful. So again, there's fear among the Herero and Nama that they will never see this money. Um, I read a lot of posts on Namibian Facebook. One man said, the government will build a one-inch building and tell us it cost $1 billion, and we will never see the money. So there's, was, no, there's no trust or even representation by the Nama and Hero people exactly. when it comes to you know, being recipients of this, uh, the $1.3 billion figure. Right. Let me, let me ask you this. How did they arrive at this $1.3 billion figure? And, and why is Germany hesitant to call it or to call the offer reparations? They, they don't want to call it reparations because one of the terms of the agreement is this is their final and last offer. They were making this offer. This is all they were going to offer. They say Namibia can never come back to them for further reparations. So they're calling it a development fund not reparations, which then allows them to give, make this agreement between the governments and not with the people who are the descendants of those who were murdered. Mm-hmm. Um, so in a way, they're really scarting, they're still scarting responsibility. Even if they're giving this money, they're not really being taking full responsibility or acknowledging. That's right. That, I, I think that's right. Symbolically, some Herero and Nama have said, this acknowledgement gives us back our dignity, even though we think the money is not enough. And I do think symbolically, it is important that Germany finally acknowledged, yes, it was a genocide. But I don't think that how they're handling the financial end of things is appropriate. And just to give you a sense of comparison, billion in American money, but in euros, which are more valuable than American dollars, Berlin alone, the city of Berlin, spends over $10 billion a year in personnel costs. So while $1.3 billion may sound like a lot of money, um, from the German point of view, it's a pretty modest sum. It's a drop in the ocean, really. And they're going to pay it out over 40 years. So again, the value of that money will drop over the 40, 40 years. Right. Um, yeah. And so this is the end of the conversation on this issue as far as Germany is concerned. Since it's not being called a reparation, it's a development fund, and the Namibian government has signed on to it, this is it. No more That's right. talk about reparations. That's right. 
there's been a, a very difficult recession in Namibia, and the government really needs money. And I think that's one of the reasons they were motivated to accept this offer right now. But whether it's going to make a difference on the ground to um, people who uh, whose families suffered from this um, is is unclear. And what does it mean that it took this long for them to acknowledge? Is there really justice? I mean, uh, almost you say 80% of the hero people were decimated. They have very re- little representation in, in, in government. It doesn't feel like really there's justice. as they, 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 they feel a sense of justice. So even the people who were uh, affected directly are not alive anymore. That's right. That's right. And maybe their great-great-grandchild is alive. Mm-hmm. Um, but whether that child is going to get back any family land, what the, ger- the land that the Germans stole in Namibia is the best land, the land that has water, the land that can be farmed and lived on, whereas huge swaths of that country are desert. Um, which, which they're going to use the $1.3 billion part of to buy back. Right. Uh, Dr. Bear, thank you very much for speaking to us. Thank you very much. It's been a pleasure. really appreciate your time. That was Dr. Elizabeth Bear, author of the book, The Genocidal Gaze from German Southwest Africa to the Third Reich. You're listening to Upfront on the Voice of America. Let's take a quick break as we listen to your voices on the Upfront question of the day. Barbara Kelvina Nafula from uh, Uganda, specifically the eastern part of Uganda. When it comes to inequality in Uganda, it's really a very big problem. So many of us, the youth, are being affected by uh, lack of jobs. You find that uh, recently there's been graduation, but you wonder where most of the graduates are going to to go after. You ask yourself, what's next? Uh, my name is Nicholas Rutaya. Income inequality, yes, it's a, it's, a, it's a problem in our country. And the only way we can, we can solve it is, is by distributing resources equally to all, to all the areas of the country. I am a Ugandan and I'm in Kampala currently. Yes, there's a lot of income inequality uh, alongside issues of gender and also issues of persons with disability. But also in terms of of, um, regions, so it's a huge challenge. However, what we can do is ensure that there is gender equality in terms of equal pay you find that some women, especially the grassroots women, are not getting their share. Welcome back. This is Upfront on the Voice of America. I'm Jackson Vogani. Now, one of the biggest battles in West Africa has nothing to do with actual war. It is a long-standing rivalry between Nigerian and Ghanaian styles of jollof, a staple of most West African homes. The debate often driven by social media, especially among the West African diaspora, on which country cooks the most delicious medley of rice and a variety of spices, is battled out in cultural festivals organized in major international cities like New York and Atlanta. This past month, the first of its kind Jollof Festival was held in Johannesburg, South Africa. The organizer Adetunji Omotola, a cultural curator based in Santon, tells me that 
the festival is less about the jollof itself and more about people coming together to enjoy food and learn about each other's culture. Um, where did you get the idea for the jollof wars? I know we've had it here in America, in different states. Is this a conversation that is taking place on the continent about who has the best jollof? Yeah, look, um, Jackson, basically, you know, I'm from Nigeria. I've lived in Ghana, you know, so um, I know what's going on between Nigeria and Ghana. We fight about a number of things, but I think the jollof one is the one that has gone viral. One of my passions is to promote African food and African wine, and I've done quite a bit of that. Mm-hmm. So I thought this year, let's try and do something. So that's how we came up with the Jollof Wars South Africa. And incidentally, there were more South Africans that attended this event than the total number of Ghanaians and Nigerians. So the South Africans took ownership of it far more than the Ghanaians and Nigerians. I mean, that would make sense since it's taking place in South Africa. But do you have a decent amount of uh, Nigerians and Ghanaians in South Africa? Oh, yeah. I mean, look, uh, the figures that are bandied around, if you Google... You find they say there are 24,000 Nigerians in South Africa, but of course, uh, some people say we're about 800,000. Well, obviously, there's no census. But I think Ghanaians will probably be you know, in the tens of thousands as well, but they're not as visible as Nigerians because Nigerians are very flashy. They like to show off a little bit. So uh, They are very well represented uh, as a population. Um, so how did the, the competition go? Who was cooking? How did you select the chefs? Was it something that was open to the general public to come and cook? Uh, or you had a select number of chefs uh, you had pre-selected who are part of the community? Okay. So basically, um, that's a good question. Basically, there are a lot more Nigerian restaurants, especially in the Santin area. Santin is like Manhattan. So, so you have a lot of Nigerians who have opened up restaurants. There's, there's actually no Ghanaian restaurant in the Santin area. There used to be one called Asanka. It's no longer in operation. So it's quite difficult for me to find Ghanaian chefs. So what I did was I called the Ghanaian High Commission in Pretoria, and they linked me up to a Ghanaian. And then through my Facebook friends, I got a Ghanaian to introduce me to another lady that cooks as well. So there were two Ghanaian chefs. There's only one Nigerian chef. We opened it up to those that we know that they have a certain standard, those who have a restaurant, that we have an idea of what they do because we didn't want to pick people randomly. How hard was it to to host an event of that nature during uh, a, a time like this? You know, COVID is still wrecking havoc. On the continent, South Africa is one of the most affected countries in Africa. In yeah, it was. How, how were you able to, to bring people together during this difficult time? So at the outset, it was quite, you know, we're following the regulations. So, you know, social distancing, about 30 people, including media and the chefs and the guests. So we're about 30. And we were lucky the venue, Caribou Water, we had about six rooms, so we were not on top of each other. And um, yeah, it was quite tough because a lot of people who would have come, we didn't come because of that, but we still managed to get about 32 people. And it was really fun because when people came, 
You know, we had an exhibition of books. We had beer. There was a beer exhibition. There was also a wine exhibition. And so that gave another angle to the Jollof War, so people could learn more about wine, about this particular beer called Jolokazi. And we also had uh, another non-alcoholic wine. We had the gin as well. So it was really a, a rich event. It was diversified. And then mm. we had lunch. We had uh, Congolese food for lunch, a buffet. So it was really great. So how, how does the battle work for, for those who have never been part of this event? Explain to us how the battle works. Obviously, it's not people throwing jollof rice at, at each other, even though you say it's jollof wars. How, what is the process like and how do you judge the best jollof? Well, look, basically, you know, you come with your ingredients, you come, I mean, in this case, because of COVID, so we advise folks not to come to the place to come and cook. That would have been more dramatic, more fun. But what they did was they brought the food that they had already cooked. In fact, incidentally, the winner, um, she had some glitches, and then she had to come and cook at my house. <laughs> we had to do it last minute, and then she cooked at my house, and incidentally, she won it. But what happens is once they present the food to the judges, we give the judges some indications in terms of the aroma, the look, you know, the taste, what they need to look out for, you know, the balance between the, you know, the, the color, the taste, the richness, you know, the diversity of the ingredients that have been put in. And I think that's the reason why the lady who won, she really put a lot of stuff. She called it competition jollof. As a, as a Nigerian yourself, are you comfortable with a Ghanaian winning a jollof battle? I'm African. I don't really care who wins it. My job is to deliver the You're event. You're going to be disowned by your people. Oh, no, I don't really care because at the end of the day, we don't even own the jollof. Ghanaians don't own it. Nigerians don't own it. It comes from Senegambia, which is now Senegal and Gambia. So we can't be claiming what is not ours. I think it's just fun. But what I do know, though, is that typically a Nigerian will be biased towards jollof from Nigeria and a Ghanaian will be biased towards jollof from Ghana. But I believe that if you have a sophisticated palate, you should appreciate food from anywhere in the world and engage your 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 senses, you know, what they talk about, the nose and the taste, your palate. Yeah. And that's what it's all about, seeing the food. And that was what we were able to do. This is Upfront of the Voice of America. My name is Jackson Vungani. We are talking to Adetunji Omotola, a cultural curator based in Santon in Johannesburg, South Africa. He's the organizer of the Jollof Festival. And as a Nigerian, can you tell the difference between if somebody presents you two plates of jollof rice, are you able to eat uh, so on a blind sample and are you able to tell are you able to tell the difference between a Ghanaian jollof and uh, and, and, and even and, the, just from the aroma, even from the aroma because you see also we use different types of rice, Jackson. So we use long grain, they use basmati. We put a lot of spices in ours, they don't. And then I think we, we enrich ours with a bit more tomato than they do. And, you know, the way we cook ours is very different from the way they cook theirs. So even from the nose, you can tell. And, of course, the taste will give it away straight away. So, yeah, it's very easy to do a blind taste and pick up which one's which. 
What is it about jollof rice that brings out the passion? So it's it's because it's rice and everybody likes rice, I would imagine. So that's what gives it that popularity. And also it's been stolen by countries as far as Cameroon, Sierra Leone, Liberia. So almost all the key countries in West Africa enjoy jollof. And you know wherever people go, they take their food with. So I think that it's the easiest thing to be able to transport rather than pounded yam and a goosey or, you know, banku with, uh, you know, all of those things that you need to have soup, you need to have your starch. So that jollof is the easiest thing. Anyone can cook it. I guess also, it's also, it's also universal because... It's universal. ...in West Africa have their own version of jollof. Absolutely. And you know what happens if you look at even the Chinese and the Indians? Rice is a major part of their food, right? So even the Indian food, you can make jollof out of this, their stew and their rice, you know? It's just that the ingredients will, if you really want to get it to that level. Yeah, you have to add a little bit more stuff into it. Right. What's your favorite jollof? Is it Ghanaian or Nigerian? Well, I'm Nigerian. What do you think? And with that, we've come to the end of our show today. Many thanks to Professor Elizabeth Bayer, author of the book, The Genocidal Gaze, from German Southwest Africa to the Third Reich. I also want to thank Omotola Adetunji, a Nigerian cultural curator based in Johannesburg, South Africa. He's the organizer of the Jollof War Festival that took place recently. Remember to connect with us on our social media platforms. We're on Facebook at VOA Upfront, on Instagram, VOA Upfront. You can connect with me on Twitter at Upfront Africa. I'm Jackson Vungani, wishing you a very good day ahead, Africa. Africa.